This is WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with global soul. Coming up next, Art on the Air, with your host, Rob Hessler. Welcome to Art on the Air with your host, Rob Hessler. This is an hour-long interview show dedicated to the visual arts in our community. Each week we interview artists, art writers, curators, and art advocates about their theory, practice, and current projects, as well as the state of the visual arts. On this week's episode, we've got two extended field notes. First, I spoke with Stephanie Howard over at Laney Contemporary, all about her exhibition, Southern Arcana, currently on view at the gallery. We've also got my interview with Rachel Reese, the outgoing Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at Telfair Museums. She's been a guest on this show several times before, and we'll reflect back on some of the projects that she's worked on, as well as what the future has in store for her. So let's get started with another episode of Art on the Air. Here's your host, Rob Hessler. And yes, we are back with another episode of Art on the Air. I am Rob Hessler, your host, as always. And sorry, no new episode last week. My wife and I were busy having a baby. So we did not have our episode last week, but little Lincoln Eddie Hilmers Hessler is now a part of our family. And you can probably hear him crying in the background as I record this little promo. But that's all I'm going to say about that. He is a wonderful, sweet little baby, and we love him so much. And he is hilarious and beautiful. But you're not here to hear about my baby. You're here to hear from some art folks. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time chit-chatting and filling space here for this episode because we've got two great guests, as I mentioned in the intro. Stephanie Howard for Exhibition Southern Arcana at Laney Contemporary, currently on view. It's an excellent exhibition. And then our sort of final going away interview with Rachel Reese as she is moving on to the Cress Gallery of Art at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, and I had a chance to talk with her. So these are two nice long field notes with two really great guests. So let's get started first here with Stephanie Howard. We'll come back in between the two interviews and I'll tie that one off a bit and then we'll hear from Rachel Reese to end the show. But here's Stephanie Howard, enjoy. Art on the Air Field Notes, I am Rob Hessler here with Stephanie Howard. We are over at Laney Contemporary talking about Southern Arcana, which is on view here at the gallery through January 11th. Before we get into talking about the show, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background, Stephanie. I know that you grew up in a environment where your grandfather was a bit of an outsider artist, mm -hmm. a preacher. Mm -hmm. How did that influence you growing up? How did that kind of inspire you maybe to become an artist or to explore art? Well, I think on both sides of my family, there were a lot of storytellers, which I think is probably more to me common in the South, common in the rural South. Uh, but my grandpa especially was a preacher and, and told amazing stories. And then when he, he was a Church of God preacher, when he re retired, his ministry turned into a ministry of art and putting his work out there. Um, he did a collage and then would paint on top of those collages and that was, and put sermons on those. And his intent was to pass them out to people and, and minister like on a one-on-one -on -one with these pieces of art. And he did them compulsively. There's just boxes and boxes and boxes of these papers that he did. So to me, he was definitely an outsider artist, which is something that I didn't really know about until I was really far into my art career. I was surrounded by, you know, this Southern sort mm -hmm. of 
outsider art growing up and never even considered that as art because for me growing up in the rural south you know art is this fancy fine art stuff and that's the direction I wanted to go in to be one of those and sort of missed out on the stuff that was right in front of me. So after going to SCAD for a couple of years and you get to that point where you know kind of how to do everything, you know how to draw really well, you know what mediums you like, and then it's like, well, what am I gonna talk about? What am I gonna draw? You know, you have this, or I have this crisis of like, okay, I know how to do all this stuff, what am I gonna say? And that's when I really got to revisit and look at all the stuff that I had grown up with in a whole new way and it just sort of just flooded, you know, through me. And I was like, oh, this is who I am. I want people to know this. And now it's through this sort of fine art perspective too, to sort of take the stuff that I've grown up with and elevate it and shine a spotlight on it and say, you know, this is important and this has heavily influenced me and what can I do with all this, these skills that I have learned. Well, and I think you bring up a couple of interesting points that, that lead me to a couple of questions is, or comments. And that's the first thing is, is that with the work that you're doing now, as you mentioned, kind of going back to your roots there with your grandfather, essentially telling mythology stories mm -hmm. through this art form that he's kind of created and mm -hmm. just worked out on his own. Whereas now you're using a very fine art technique, mm -hmm. but you're, you've created an entire mythology as well. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, he, he used a lot of the symbols and in his ministry, you know, there was a lot of nature, there was a lot of birds and, you know, all this local flora and fauna stuff that I have always used, southern plants and animals that work their way through. Like I said, it was literally just I was overcome with, you know, everything I'd ever seen and heard and song and just the Appalachian Mountains and everything just flooded through. And I was like, well, I have to create some kind of language to put this back out so that people can understand it and, and make something that, you know, makes sense. So. Well, and I think, you know, SCAD is the University for Creative Careers. Mm -hmm. So it's got the word career in it. It's, right. it's meant to teach you techniques and the way to actually do something and then lead into a essentially a job at the end of the right. line that's like what it's supposed to right. do so yeah. finding a way to marry the training with your background mm -hmm. I think is kind of interesting yeah I mean for me I guess I never really even understood it as that it was it was a huge deal to begin with that I would go to art school where I was from, you know, that there were artists in my family, but not artists, you know, looking back on it, you have all these quilters, all these really, you know, uh, fantastic um, artists, men and women throughout my family, but they were not considered fine artists. So it was a huge deal for me to, you know, go to art school, even though it was just four hours away, you know, that was as far away as I was allowed to get. And, but I loved the fact that it was still in the South and, and could appreciate that and that it was still very different for me, but um, still very familiar. So before we get really into talking about the show, there was something that you're talking about your background mm -hmm. and you mentioned that within the context of your show here and this series, that there's a tribe of women. And you mentioned that there meant to be a balancing force in contrast to powerful and horribly hate-filled southern mask-wearing male organizations of the past. Before we start talking about the show specifically, I wonder, growing up in the South, how you were sort of exposed to that kind of ideology, because obviously it has impacted your work now in the present. Mm -hmm. And it's something, as a southern artist and a white woman, that... You know, I love the South, and I, everything I do is about the South, 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 but talking about that, you have to also understand that there's this horrible history associated with that, and and I have, I struggle with that still, you know, how can I love something so much that has this horrible, tragic part of it, so that had something to do with that, you know, I was surrounded with all that in the rural South, you know, you're just surrounded by a lot of racism, but it, my family is full of very strong-willed women and men who support very strong-willed women. So I think that's where that sort of tribe idea came from. And, and just thinking about, in general, uh, my work is, you know, featured white women because I am a white woman. That's what I know. But there are several 
I've, I've been surrounded by white women my entire life and just all the different roles they play in the South. You know, I, my grandma was a preacher's wife, so that's one thing. And then mm-hmm. there's the very strong women in the rural, you know, farming. And um, and then there's the very silent, you know, who, who have the overbearing. And then just not only in my own family, but throughout history, you know, just what what is the white woman's role in this? In, in certain historic events or scenarios. I think of the Emmett Till situation and, you know, he whistled at a white lady and that was the catalyst that started that whole thing. So it's like, what was going on in her life? What role? She had such a powerful role. And then on the other side of that, I think you have the powerful, you know, Emmett Till's mom. And I think, well, there's the women, but what role did the white woman play in that? So I think it's just looking back through history and me trying to sort of resolve or make sense of the fact that I love the South so much and everything and the magic and all the, you know, the things that I love about the South and trying to make sense of the horribleness of it. And I think that's where this creation came from. It's just like, well, you know, I can go back and change it. I can create a different thing. Well, and also even more than that, even beyond that is that generally speaking, when you're talking about history, women's accomplishments are overlooked or minimized. So the opportunity to sort of create this story that was kind of not really paid attention to then, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a great opportunity for you as an artist. Yeah. Let's get into the exhibition because I know that you've been inspired by the tarot deck. And you've sort of divided the show into two pieces. You've got major arcana and minor arcana. So why don't you tell our listeners what that means? What's Major Arcana and what's Minor Arcana? So Major Arcana is, um, in the tarot, is big, overarching, life-changing thing. So when that, for me, that um, relates to the tribe and that it's a generational tribe. It's just overarching through the decades. It's this tribe of women who are making changes throughout history, just the big stuff. The minor arcana, to me, what comes to mind is a woman sitting at the dining room table casting runes to see, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. So it's almost like, uh, if you remember the movie The Hours, how they flash between these women's lives. It's like I flash between these women, these tribal women in the woods. They're sort of watching and listening and remembering these injustices and, and through history following these families and providing some sort of, we remember, you know, we remember what you did. And then flashing to a woman at the dinner table just trying to divine and figure out from the patterns surrounding her whether that's the wallpaper or the tablecloth or just looking at that and divining her future or her future love or you know things like that so it's just a major arcana of these women using divination and intuition to follow families through history and then the minor arcana of just divining the fortune telling for the everyday <laughs> You're listening to Art on the Air on WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings Community Radio with Global Soul. Now let's get back to our interview with Stephanie Howard over at Laney Contemporary. Well, okay, let's talk about the specific works then because the works that fall into Major Arcana in the exhibition, they're essentially three different things. There's the masks, Mm -hmm. there's physical artifacts, and then there's photographs. So let's talk about all three of those in whatever order you think that's appropriate. Well, um, to give you a little bit of background on uh, sort of what I do in my drawing for the past several years, I sort of created, when I was going to SCAD, it ended up being a way that I could remember slides, which every art student can identify with. And I was reading uh, the Red Dragon book. It's one of the Hannibal Lecter books, and one of the characters in it, how they memorize things or remember things was they would imagine that the things were on the wall in a museum. So you would physically be walking through a museum and see these paintings and, and look down at the, you know, tag and see title, date. And I was like, oh, I can do that. I can remember it that way instead of just memorizing cards after cards after images. So I started developing these the spaces in my mind where I could just walk around. So that led to me developing you know, a whole town, uh, which I later read, you know, that's where Faulkner comes in. He developed his whole town, and that's where he wrote from. Mm -hmm. That was sort of the same thing. So 
in relation to this, I drew things like the Slabtown girls as if I was walking through the town and saw them and took almost a snapshot. And then the other work that I did, the Shag Queen series, which a lot of people know of, was almost as if I reached up to a wall within the town and pulled something down, like a poster. As opposed to drawing people who were walking around in this fictitious town, I would go up and pull something off the wall. So that's kind of the same thing here. There are the masks, but then there, there's this documentation, like the, the dress, the child's dress, where now I'm actually pulling objects from this world. And this world, in this, in this case, is a history that I've created. So um, we've pulled, I've started pulling the objects from this world, and that's that part of it, taking pictures, like I would have done drawings before, and then pulling actual objects from the world and, and documenting them as if they are in an archive. Well, and what's so interesting about the way that they're presented too, specifically the photographs and those objects, they're in the mirror room of the gallery, and there is a placard which talks about sort of a, an imagined history next to it. And then there's like the actual artist, the art card, which says, oh, this is what the materials are and everything like that. And it's interesting as a viewer to kind of be going through that and you're actually more drawn to the historical card, almost like you're feeling like you're going through some right. sort of history exhibit. And then, of course, the dress and the play masks mm -hmm. are in a case, which is very much like the kind of case that would have archaeological items or something like that if you right. were in a museum. And it reinforces the story element that you're telling. Yeah, I, I like that, that somebody may not know, is this real? Is this, if they're just going through and not really noticing that, oh, well, maybe this is a real his historical thing. Did this tribe really exist? And I'm okay with them having that incorrect information, you know? Um, for me, you know, it's it's just something that I thought about so long and it was just how can I make this real and how can I really fill this out for myself and, and for the viewer. It was just something really interesting to think about and work on. I think if the actual art show tags were pulled down, <laughs> I mean, you would easily be fooled because the photographs really remind me of photographs from that period in the past, like the 30s and, mm -hmm. and you know, the eras that you're kind of referencing, right. fictional, fictional right. eras that you're referencing, but it kind of looks like that. And then of course you mentioned like the dress and the mask, the dress looks weathered, the mask look played with, mm -hmm. and they're made out of cardboard, which could be old. It's like, right. it doesn't necessarily say these are new materials. Right, and, and that's something that I've always done with my drawings as well. I like the fact that the color of paper mm -hmm. and things like that, you can't really tell what time they're from or what time the people in them are from. Is it 60s, is it 30s, is it 20s? You know, is it a mix? And in my world, it can be a mix, but I like that um, where people don't necessarily know what when this came when this was created and and what you know part of history it's trying to depict so I like that that flows into the photographs as well and then you know I was thinking when you go to a museum you just take for granted that what's on the wall is the truth but it's something that somebody has created for the most part you know they've done a lot of research but it's just they don't know the true story they've created a story so it's basically the same thing. <laughs> so if yeah. we did pull down those tags, yeah, I, I wonder what would happen. You just... well, so there's a couple of things now. You know, obviously with the, the women wearing masks who are fighting for empowering ideas in contrast to the true historical mask-wearing men of that right. era. right. There's a lot that goes into why <laughs> groups like the KKK wore right. masks and things yes. like that. But I'm curious as to why you have the characters of your mythological women wearing masks in that. I wanted these other groups to be scared of them. I wanted that to be the scariest group. Like, we're hiding in the woods. We're camouflaged. We're dangerous. We're more dangerous than you. And we're quiet. We're not violent. We're watching you. And we're going to quietly just strangle your organization or strangle, you know, when you, like I've mentioned before, when you're so, when your soul and your everything is so mixed in with the South, it's like you can't go back and change this in reality. You can't, but you want to so bad. You want to create something that just puts the fear of God 
in these other and these women in my mind do that they're terrifying their power <laughs> i look at the image of masked elder uh-huh and that one i mean i looked at it and it is very terrifying the mask <laughs> what you've done with the photograph it blurs out the head yes. all you see is the mask on this body and when I first looked at it, first glance at it, it almost looked like the body, like she was enormous. It almost the way the right. perspective is, it looks mm -hmm. like she is larger than life. Right. And then there's this mask and it's in very odd shape. And yes. it is terrifying. Yeah. And you, and the way that lighting was done, that was actually a Polaroid picture. And I uh, just played with the lighting that day. I didn't alter that image at all digitally. But it ended up looking like the mask became her. Like parts of her head are gone and the mask has taken that over. So she's become this thing. She's become something else, a symbol. But uh, yeah, that was my vision that they would be the most, they would be quiet and the most terrifying. Let's talk about the drawings of the masks themselves, which occupy the main gallery and they reference the sort of Rorschach test look about them. Yes. I want to talk about that decision and then I also want to talk about the technique because I think that the drawing, the, the technical aspect of the drawing is also really interesting. Mm -hmm. But talk a little bit about your decision to kind of go with this reference to like a Rorschach image. Yeah. Well, I just think for me, there's, there's not a lot to that other than those have always been very compelling images. And you know, the, the mirror, both sides mirrored, it happens in nature too, you know, flowers and animals and things like that. So the, and that's, a, it's very powerful to have that equal, you know, the equal sides and the balance of that. So other than those being really compelling shapes to look at and the fact that in researching that and knowing that people would compare them to those, um, it was very interesting to me that they, I always thought it was just an ink blot and they smushed it together and opened it up and there you go, that, you know, tell us what this is. But they were meticulously drawn and redrawn and planned. And, and that's kind of what I did. You had to almost create a language. They were, you know, done and redone and redone and then mirrored the image, which is what I was doing, not to really ask people to look at it and tell me what you see, but for it to be a powerful shape and to, to have this language and then mirror it, almost sort of doubling its power. Well, and I will say that might not have been what you were asking of your viewer, but there's that natural instinct, I think, as I was looking through the space to look at it and say, well, what am I seeing here? And our minds want to make meaning out of right. abstract shapes like that. Yes. And because we know the concept of Rorschach, at least for <laughs> me, it's like I am looking for things within it. Right. Which I think is a really, you know, you say And there's, that, well, there's thought, there was thought put into these shapes themselves and the women and what status they would have in the tribe. There's bones of animals that would be local to the Southern Appalachians, flowers, shapes of flowers that would be there. There's shells, there's all that stuff, but then mirrored, you may see it, you may not, you may see something completely different. But also the idea was that it's a camouflage, so they could just sort of creep back into the, you know, brush of the woods, and you would just see these sort of faint glimpses of the edges of these objects, but then that much like uh, a poisonous bug or frog or flower or whatever, that they would be very compelling, but also you would get that note of this is dangerous too. Yeah, and I, oh man, okay, I love that. I want to <laughs> talk about Minor Arcana as well. But before we do that, let's talk about the technique that you're yes. using because Susan Laney of Laney Contemporary has described it resulting in drawings so densely saturated with ink that they appear to be quilted onto the paper. Yes. And if you look at the drawings and you get very close to them, the, lar the areas of thick ink, there is a patterning mm -hmm. within them that isn't obvious necessarily from afar. So as a viewer, you get multiple experiences at different distances depending on how close and far away. So talk a little bit about the development of your technique because I think it's really interesting. So I was a painting major for a really long time. A lot of people always, they think I'm illustration, but I was a painting major. I'm really into painting and just got so far into the minutia of mixing your own paint and doing all that. And, and one day I was just like, I just, I have to drop all this because I was just had so many ideas and it was taking so long to develop one idea into a piece of art. 
I'm like, I'm just going to get a pen and a piece of paper and just start drawing these ideas. There are just too many. They're coming too fast. I've got to simplify this thing. And when I started doing that, I sat down and I folded the paper. I had this huge sheet of paper, folded the paper, and then got the pen. And sitting there drawing, I thought, this is, I'm doing embroidery. You know, something I watched my grandmother do my entire life. <laughs> and, and that's what I'm doing. And all of those things still, they're stitches. They're stitches to me when I'm holding a pen in my hand, putting it on the paper, it's a stitch. And I've never, you know, I've used the same pen this whole time because the thickness of it is the thickness of a stitch as I recognize it. So even the black parts, it's almost like stitches. And I think of that when, you know, you would look in a broader, you would see the stitches even in a, a field of solid color. So um, when you get up close, you can see that. It's, I mean, it is spot on, the stitches. When you say that to me, I look at it yeah. and I'm, I and that's what I think about, you know, I, I'm physically drawing, but to me it's stitches in, in the paper and folding the paper. I used to do a lot more of that, but the paper, you know, it's tough and it turns into cloth. So it, I was just basically doing stitch work. And the first drawing that I ever did with that technique, I was going to SCAD. The very next day, my dad died suddenly. So I'm in the process of doing this drawing, which I eventually completed and still have, that's when the, the factor of time came in. And that's still a huge factor in my work because suddenly you, your priorities change and time is of such great importance. And that sort of triggered something in me with, with the painting and the paintings I was doing. You would never know how long it took. Did it take a year to do that? Did it take a day? But with this work, there was a way for me to show the time that it took to complete the work and then also provided me with this technique that I loved that was like stitching into cloth but drawing onto paper. And it seems almost meditative, like the way that it is. It's like stitch, 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 stitch yeah. as you like look at it. And you're right, like as somebody who appreciates that kind of heavily detailed work, looking at it you can say there is a justification almost like of the work of the time. Like it's not just it's not just an ink blot. Right. It is yeah. very, it is stitched onto the paper. Yeah. Let's talk about minor arcana, which is described here as forecast by divining patterns of the future and interpreting messages received from items in a domestic environment. Yes. And you've done floral still lives. Yes. For the most part to represent that. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I just, it was a way like, Growing up, for me, in a southern home, you're surrounded by all this pattern and all this stuff. And I just thought, well, we're surrounded by all these patterns, and they're so connected with our lives. You know, why don't we look to that to divine our future from the, the patterns that we surround, the things and the patterns that we surround ourselves with? So the fact that you could take things that, you know, mean something to you and that surround you in your daily life and then hold those as like a lot of the patterns I have here repeated images hold those in your mind and use a technique like throwing runes in this case throwing the black marbles and sort of read that from the the things that surround you and you would my idea was that you'd get a more potent <laughs> maybe um more correct foretelling of what your future might be well and what's interesting with that particular style of divining that you describe it's often one of those things where it predicts the future but it's very difficult to understand what it means in the moment but then when it happens it's so obvious in looking back at it and I look at these pieces like flower divination one and then advanced flower divination one and a good catch, like all three of those images where it's like, there's something going on there and there's references to very specific flower types mm -hmm. and things that have meaning attached to them to the educated viewer, mm -hmm. but you have to have the code to, to be able mm -hmm. to divine it. Right, and then the, it's like somebody's put this together and then it's still an actual drawing and the marbles are on top of that drawing. So there's a, another layer of somebody has put this language together 
So it, it's, I don't think you necessarily need to know what they all mean, but you know they are meaningful. And a part of that that I like as well is just the fact that somebody could sit at a table and divine their future and that that would be just something that people did, that women just did. And it was like, yes, there's magic. We understand that magic is a real thing. And this is just something that women do as a conscious thing that's not a secret, that not is not hidden away. I love the fact that it could be um, just a common occurrence for women to just, to, you know, constantly do that. And not negative or evil, no. you know, <laughs> nothing to be ashamed of. It's just right. a thing. Yeah, which, you know, when you talk about magic is a real thing, you know, it's here. It's like, okay, you know, back away slowly. But, you know, for me it is. And um, just the fact, the thought that that could be an accepted idea that magic is real and it permeates everything. I love that, that people would just, you know, be sitting in their living room and say, okay, we'll see what's happening tomorrow and just use magic and ritual to figure that out. And I think one interesting way that you get that across is in a couple of the pieces, surface divination with spirit animal mm -hmm. and then surface divination with a lamb. The background images are so innocuous and so almost comforting mm -hmm. that it's like whatever is happening on top of those images can't possibly be a negative. Right. And then the fact those two, it's kind of creepy that all of the or to me, it's interesting that all of the marbles have ended up in the right spot. And it's kind of like, well, well, there's a there's a pattern to this overall. Everything falls into place in a way that's just completely unrealistic and could never happen ever again. And there's no way that it should happen that way, but it can happen that way. And that's the way it was supposed right, to be. Right, right. Everything in perfect order, which is almost more eerie than, you know, the marbles just being scattered all over the page. Right. I want to ask this on a sort of personal level, surface divination with spirit animal, <laughs> it's the deer. Now, is that, are you talking about your spirit animal? Uh, yes, and then, that's and then my why? spirit animal. Um, well, I am part Cherokee, and that was, I guess, our tribal animal, so... Um, and it's deer, for those of you who are listening, yes. yes. <laughs> it's deer, so I thought, well, I'll use mine. Very My cool. spirit animal. So I'm going to finish up this interview now, but I wanted to ask you, now that you've sort of completed this and you've got this up, you've created this tribe, you've got this background story, and then you're also making small forays into divining the future. Do you think about where does this go from here? Like, where is this moving? Are you still exploring the past and the future simultaneously? What are you thinking of? Where does this show go from here? Well, this is just, I think, an extension of everything I've always done. So it's just going to continue in that way of just being sort of what time is this from? You can't really tell what's going on here. There are symbols that I kind of, I know something is happening. I know there are flowers and objects of meaning and something is happening here. You don't necessarily, it's like I'm creating a language constantly. And if you want to delve into that and put your own stuff onto that, you can but that it's a powerful thing even when you don't know exactly what everything stands for. I like that sort of, you know, you can figure it out and, and put your meaning onto it or you don't have to know anything, but you do have to know that it's important and that it just creates this feeling of power and this is a powerful object or something powerful is happening here when you look at this object. Stephanie Howard, the exhibition is Southern Arcana it goes through January 11th at Laney Contemporary at 1810 Millsby Lane Boulevard. Thank you so much for being on, on, on the air today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Art on the Air is brought to you by Starlandia Supply. Located in the heart of the Starland District of Savannah at 2438 Bull Street. Starlandia Supply works to make art making more accessible to everyone by lowering the price of supplies through reclamation and trading. Starlandia helps customers recycle gently used art supplies and materials and also carries a fine selection of new materials including Winsor Newton, Liquitex, Faber-Castle, Montana spray paints, and Copics. Moreover, Starlandia Supply is the only locally owned art store in Savannah. They're open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Sunday from noon to 6 p.m. 
More information can be found on Facebook by searching Starlandia Supply or at StarlandiaSupply.com. Shop local. Shop Starlandia Supply. You're listening to Art on the Air on WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings Community Radio with Global Soul. And that was our interview with Stephanie Howard over at Laney Contemporary about her exhibition Southern Arcana. Let's get into our second long-form field note of the day, that with Rachel Reese, the outgoing curator of modern and contemporary art at Telfair Museums. Listen up. Rob Hessler here with Art on the Air Field Notes. I am with Rachel Reese. We are at Gallery Espresso right now. Rachel has just taken a position as the new director and curator of the Crest Gallery of Art at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Before we get into your new position, I wanted to take a step back and talk about your time at the Telfair. How did you come to the Telfair a little over four years ago? Let's start there. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob, first of all. Yeah, so I came to Telfair in 2015. It was right out of four years ago, basically, November. I think I started in 2015, and I was in Atlanta at Atlanta Contemporary. What really interested me about the opportunity at Telfair was to be the first modern contemporary curator uh, in the institution's history. So they did not have that person, that curatorial position on staff before, so they were sort of creating a new line. And, and for me, it was a signal that they're prioritizing, you know, a modern and contemporary program. I didn't have, you know, someone's shoes to fill. And so the opportunity and the options were, were open. They were really wide open. Um, the Jepson Center had been open for about a decade when I started, celebrating its first decade in my first year there. So for me, it was a lot of foundation laying, you know, kind of thinking about getting support for contemporary art in the city at a, a museum level, right? Thinking about building the collection and some of the work that I was doing was, you know, diving into the modern contemporary collection, putting more things on view, doing research, adding to our, you know, body of knowledge around objects we already had, and really acquiring, actively acquiring again. And that's something that um, had not been done for the several decades before. And then really sort of building a culture around working with living artists, contemporary artists, and commissioning you know, new exhibitions and projects with contemporary artists. So it was a combination of all those things and the opportunity to sort of build my work around those um, different facets of this position where that really piqued my interest. So yeah, over four years, I feel like we were really able to do a lot of that good work, you know, add works to the collection, work with artists, some really exciting projects, put more of our collection on view, and build some support. When you are talking about that, are you talking about complex uncertainties, artists in post-war America, that yes. part of the collection? Mm -hmm. So delve a little bit more into that because our listeners might not know what exactly what that means mm -hmm. and what role that kind of plays at the Telfair, and specifically the Jepson Center, which shows modern art for mm -hmm. the most part. Yeah, so the collection gallery exhibition is called Complex Uncertainties, Artists in Post-War America, and that was sort of a first charge to think about putting the modern contemporary collection on view, and at Telfair that's 1945 to the present day. There's about 2,200 objects from that date range in the collection and it's growing but to really sort of put a frame around the collection and reinterpret it in a new way and so you know after doing I think I did about my first nine months it was like researching the collection you know just kind of getting my bearings on our holdings what we had I just wanted to present a, a framework that talked about how artists are contemporary in the moment in which they're living they're always responding to you know personal political, personal social, you know, different pressures or different experiences in the world. And so it was just a way to kind of think about objects in our collection in a new way. And we rotated things every six months, so there was always something to come and see. And we also used it as a way to sort of grow support for the collection. So we would loan some objects in, have them on view in conversation with works in our collection, and then we were able to acquire some works that way as well. 
one of the things that I've found to be really exciting in recent years is like, for example, and we'll hear a question later on from Lisa Watson, but for example, the museum purchased one of her pieces mm -hmm. and that's been in that show there as well. Mm -hmm. The large installation project by Catherine Sando earlier this mm -hmm. year, which showed a huge investment by the museum in doing something with a local artist. Mm -hmm. Is that a part of this project? Is that sort of what you're talking about here? Yeah, definitely. You know, in the gallery itself, uh, in the Jepson Center that houses this show, we could put about 30 to 50 works on view at a time. And sort of, I was thinking about that, uh, the representation that was always on view, you know, whether that was gender, racial, equity, thinking about works that had been just sitting in our storage for decades, you know, putting something on view for the first time ever. I did that for a few works and they became some of our most popular visitor pieces. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, if we were acquiring something, I immediately wanted to get it out and on view as part of the collection to say, hey, you know, we acquire things and we also show them, right? You know, a lot of museums and, you know, Telfair is no exception, right? We have tons of things in storage and we show 2% of our collection at any time, right? I know that the new MoMA just opened up and there's a really great podcast um, with the two sort of curators that were leading the reinstallation, the art newspaper podcast, and they were talking about even with all this new work and 47,000 square feet of new space, they still only have something like 6 to 10% of their collection on view, right? But that's cool though because it gives an opportunity like every time you go back to the museum, and I'm a, a member, so like every time you go back to the museum, it's very likely you're seeing something new. Yeah, and that new was, to you that's the hope, yeah, is that, you know, sure, if you come to the museum one time ever and you're just popping in the door, of course there's, you know, a variety to look at, but if you live here and you're returning and it is your museum, you can come and see something new on view every few months and sort of keep it fresh and, you know, rethink sort of the conversation happening between objects or rethink you know, a wall where I'm adding Lisa Watson next to Carrie Mae Weems, for example, mm -hmm. and having sort of small moments in the same gallery, so. Well, let's talk about some of the exhibitions as well, because you've been a part of over 20 exhibitions in conjunction with Telfair Museums, which mm -hmm. is pretty impressive for four years. <laughs> I mean, if you think about 20 yeah, exhibitions in really four active. years. really mm -hmm. Yes, and I just kind of want to point out a couple of highlights. I mean, you mentioned the Carrie Mae Weems exhibition, Paul Stephen Benjamin, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. And then actually my personal favorite, Nick Cave. So okay. I want to talk a little bit about that exhibition because yeah. I didn't get to talk to you about it when it was up. How was it working with him? Because he's one of my favorite living artists now. So putting that exhibition together, that's a kind of a challenging exhibition to put together because of the nature of like mm -hmm. the sound suits and everything like that. Mm -hmm. That exhibition came together really fast. So honestly, didn't have much involvement with Nick himself because that was in February 2017. I think I had about six months that show together and primarily worked with his gallery, Jack Shaman, on sort of creating a checklist of works that were available and then adding some, some works into things that were available from the gallery. But he, at the same time, was working on that major show at Mass Mocha yeah. until... It was happening at the exact same time. It was happening time. at the exact same time. So, you know, an artist can be in one place at one time. So, really, I was working more with his gallery on thinking about works that would fit our space, getting a good selection of sound suits that would be, you know, good in conversation with each other. And uh, But we were fortunate to bring Denise Marconish, who was the curator at Mass Mocha, who had worked with him for several years, to Savannah to give a talk, at least to like members and patrons. She was sick the night. Um, I gave the lecture. I gave the fill-in, the fill-in lecture, which was like <laughs> such a weird way to put it. But I ended up giving like the big opening lecture. But I was able to talk with her about her relationship with Nick and how he thinks and kind of run things through her as well, which was helpful. So I never met him. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. I actually went back to that exhibition three times, which is. A lot of times to go to an art exhibition, but I what I think is really cool about that, though, you're talking about you know bringing living artists into the space, and as you mentioned, there's a major exhibition of his work going on in New York, and yet here in little old Savannah, mm -hmm. there's this incredible exhibition of mm -hmm. an artist who is like at the peak of his powers, mm -hmm. and we can see him right here, and that's what I think the Jepson Center and Telfer Museums can do for mm -hmm. us is to see really groundbreaking 
living artists in our own little town here. Yeah, exactly. And it was really important for me to think about the balance between nationally, internationally relevant artists, bringing them to Savannah, right? So that our hometown museum can have that quality and caliber of work and we can be in that conversation with those artists and then be a part of that artist's exhibition history forever. And then also working with artists who are regional or living and working in the Southeast and sort of helping to elevate their careers as well. And then what happens when you put those both together is that, in my opinion, everybody benefits, right? When you have an artist like Elisa Watson or Catherine Sondo in conversation with another artist on view at the museum, right, there's a, there's a connection there. And I think, you know, it all comes back to the museum and sort of the responsibility of the museum to be doing both of those types of, of work and exhibition planning and programming. Let's talk a little bit about local artists here because we had you and Suzanne Jackson on. Of course, in the last week, Suzanne's work has been featured in the New York Times and she's got New York gallery representation, everything like that. But really, when over two years ago, when you started working with her, not really many people, especially in Savannah, had even heard of her. And I think that's something that's kind of an important part of the work that I see as an outsider that you've done at the Telfair is to kind of raise some of the profile of local artists or artists that are working in the Southeast that maybe people haven't heard of, but they're about to hear about them, whether they hear about them here or whether it's someplace else. Yeah, well, thank you for the compliment. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I think Suzanne's a great example of that. You know, she obviously has a long history and was well known in the West Coast and you know, we worked together over two and a half years. I think I had my first studio visit with her in 2016. And so very shortly after, we sort of put the plans in place to work on this project. And I think we had two years in earnest to organize the retrospective. And for me, that felt really fast, just knowing the massive materials, you know, like mm -hmm. life materials, ephemera, and full inventory of artwork that was in her home studio from the late 50s, early 60s to today. Plus she's yeah. super prolific. So super like prolific. I mean, she was, she was just, I mean, literally living amongst her work. And I think that's what I saw immediately when I went to her home studio that very first time was, wow, like not only is she just worthy because I have a connection to her work, right? But um, starting to piece together this really interesting history and sort of realizing that, yeah, she has been head down in Savannah for decades making her work and had never had a look at a museum before, you know, and had never had a retrospective in the city in which she was living and working. So I felt like she was, you know, the perfect artist to sort of invest all of, you know, our time and our resources into and yeah, and when you do it right and you pay attention and you do it well, it should do all of those other things, you know. She should be in the New York Times. She should get a New York gallery. So I'm really proud that I played a small role in that, you know. At the same time, you know, sort of building on this, like, big crescendo or apex um, that has happened to her in the past years, you know. She had a, a show in Los Angeles at the same space that she had her gallery 50 years before. She was being inserted into uh, Soul of a Nation at the Brooklyn Museum, right? So. I think there was this sort of collective momentum building around her that luckily the timing of the retrospective and the publishing of the book only helped to sort of solidify I think her reputation now which is great I'm really curious to think about where she's gonna go in the next 20 years because I don't know I know Suzanne's gonna be alive when she's a hundred <laughs> <laughs> I think she's you're gonna right be making work. <laughs> Let's take a step now because you've had a couple of other projects that you've done since then. We have mentioned Michael Colster. You've also got the Summon the Sea Contemporary Artists and Moby Dick, which is actually in the museum right now, and that's a group exhibition, so you've been involved in those projects. But in the interest of time, let's take a step into your new venture here as gallery director at the Crest Gallery of Art at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Yes. So tell our listeners why you decided to make the transition to that and what is exciting to you about that project because people might not have heard about that, but Chattanooga is a really up-and-coming place for arts. Yeah, Chattanooga is a really interesting city. It's an interesting jump for me in sort of going to academia 
right? And being in a university context, but what I think is really exciting about that for me is that it's like this full ecosystem, right? You have student learners, you've got students, BFA students, right? You have a progressive program that is run by faculty artists whose careers and interests and practices are very interesting and I would encourage you all to to look at the faculty at UTC Art because they're relatively like a younger cohort of faculty artists that are that are making all types of work you know sculpture video installation graphic arts so sort of seeing that seeing the student body and then having this this gallery model that I knew about I knew the former director there was Ruth Grover and I knew her when I was at Atlanta Contemporary, actually when I was living in New York, I knew of the Crest because they have they had a patron named Diane Merrick and she founded um, what they call the Diane Merrick series where they were bringing in artists for short residencies and engagement with the students and an exhibition once a year. And I was living in New York and I knew some New York artists that were part of the Diane Merrick series in Chattanooga and I was like, oh, you know, my ears kind of perked up, like, what are you doing in Chattanooga? So Ruth, the former director, was there for decades and retired, and that piqued my interest when I saw that position become live because thinking about sort of the ecosystem there and thinking about where that program can grow, there's a lot of opportunity, not unlike sort of thinking about the opportunity that was here four years ago, but you know, my interest is sort of thinking about creating a contemporary space and uh, Institute for Contemporary Art on that campus that can be a commons, right? Not only be a, a space for the art department, which has been doing very well, but how can it also serve the entire university campus? And also then, so how does it serve the city of Chattanooga mm -hmm. as a contemporary art space? Because there is not an institute or program dedicated just to contemporary art in that city. And then how can it become, again, like maintain its reputation, become a space that people look to regionally or nationally, and I'll have autonomy, which I think is great. So I will, you know, be able to sort of develop a program and create a strategy and, and think about a vision that I can build over time. And, and again, you know, very artist driven. How can I bring artists in to engage with that context and to create really exciting, maybe more progressive projects? on a campus, so, and I'll also get to teach a class, which I taught a class in Philadelphia years ago at PAFA, and then I taught at Georgia State as an adjunct for a few years, so um, I think that's really neat too, is sort of, you know, I love writing, and I love teaching, and, you know, is it curatorial studies driven, is it professional practices, it's open, so I think that's interesting to me too. Well, I want to ask you too, as a native of Atlanta, mm -hmm. And as somebody who has spent some time now in Savannah, Chattanooga is also in the South. And so you've really kind of been making some curatorial strides as somebody who is involving yourself in, to a great deal with Southern artists and creating what is today's Southern art scene, really. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what role that might have played as well in deciding to go. It's a ways away from Savannah, but it still is a Southern city, and it certainly has a Southern identity. Exactly, yeah. I am, I feel very invested in the Southeast. I mean, I've been, I grew up here, but I've been working professionally here for, I don't know, six years now. So I want to continue to do my work in the Southeast and to elevate the profile of artists living and working here, you know, or artists that have lived and worked here and now live somewhere else, right? But I think people are also looking to the Southeast. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's untapped. Tennessee's having a moment. They're having a triennial that comes online in 2021. And there's some really interesting sort of networks in Tennessee that I'm excited to tap into. But yeah, you know, and thinking about where I wanted to go and what was the right fit for me, I was thinking very strategically about where I wanted to be, the type of artist I want to be working with, and the, the types of places and contexts that I have already been in conversation with or I wanted to continue to be in conversation with. I think what's going to be cool about Chattanooga is it's connected to Appalachia. And that's mm -hmm. interesting to me, you know, I feel like in Savannah for four years I was able to learn about the Gullah Geechee culture and heritage and I loved that show with Carrie Mae Weems as a way mm -hmm. to do that work. So yeah, thinking about place is something that I'm excited about. Well, we're going to finish <laughs> up our interview with a little segment here and it is called Three Big Questions. Okay. And now 
it's time for Three Big Questions with your host, Rob Hessler. Normally I reach out to sort of the public at large and do a posting and gather questions, but this time I wanted to reach out to some very specific people who I think know your work here in Savannah. Because we're just talking about your sort of plans for the crest, I'll ask this question from Lisa Watson, who we've spoken about during this interview. What is one or a few strategic initiatives you will be establishing at Crest Gallery that you were unable to pursue here? Mm, interesting. I think really sort of connecting with a student community is something that's exciting. I wish there was a better connection between SCAD and Telfair here. And I think that's something I lamented. But yeah, sort of building a connection to a student body, thinking about bringing artists as educators, I think is really interesting to me. Thinking about pushing the envelope, you know? I mean, they're just mm -hmm. totally different contexts when, you know, at Telfair you have a sort of regional American museum, right? And we've got several curators and we balance a program accordingly, right? I feel like I can kind of get back to my roots as just a contemporary curator and really think about pushing the program and really thinking about representing contemporary practice in 2020 and beyond, and that's going to be exciting to me. We didn't really talk about it, but I want to bring it up now because I think one of the things that you did with Aaron Dunn, actually, who is going to be stepping into your position as you step away, which is exciting, I think, for the Savannah Art Committee. A lot of people know Aaron, and she's Definitely. done a great job. She's done a really great job and well-deserved yes. on her part, is doing the studio visits. You mentioned mm -hmm. about engaging the students here in, in Chattanooga, mm -hmm. but one thing you did do is you did a lot of studio visits yes. while you were here, you and Erin. Talk a little bit about that experience, because yeah. I thought that was a cool thing that you guys I should have done more, so yeah, I definitely want to, I love doing that, and I wish I had more time to, to go to studios and to be out in that way, like looking outward and, and being out in studios is a hard balance with just museum program and museum administration sometimes. And um, putting together 20 shows in yeah. four years. <laughs> you know, no big deal. But yeah, I'm excited about getting into some studio visits also in Chattanooga or in the region, Knoxville, Nashville, Memphis, Atlanta, you know, it's sort of a hub there between different um, mm -hmm. cities. So definitely that's a big part of my practice as a contemporary curator. Always sort of growing on that, growing that network. Well, let's follow that up with this question from Christopher Monroe, and he wonders what kind of advice that you have for oh, Savannah gosh, now that you're stepping away. Oh, an advice question. Yes. Ooh, advice is so hard for me. Well, maybe some advice that you've gotten that you think you could pass on to Savannah, maybe that we can integrate into our... Yeah, I think what immediately comes to mind is maybe less advice and more encouragement and a hope, right, is that sort of ethos and spirit of working with artists both in Savannah and bringing artists to the programming at, at Telfair will continue you know I mean that that I feel like is something that I'm going to be watching from <laughs> from Chattanooga you hear that she'll be watching <laughs> I'm going to be watching <laughs> and uh, I'm very curious to see where it goes and I hope it remains a priority because in my opinion for a museum to stay relevant is you have to stay connected with practices that are happening today and those things are relevant to audiences today very cool well we'll ask this well actually i'm going to ask a question too so we okay. have two more questions <laughs> but this one is from a friend of yours and, and another great curator in town susan laney of laney mm -hmm. contemporary and she says if you could be transported to anywhere in the world to eat a meal, <laughs> nice. where would it be, what would it be, and who would you eat it with? Oh, gosh. Crazy question, Susan. Thanks a lot. <laughs> hmm. Well, just sort of speaking off the cuff, maybe I would go to northern India and have a meal. I love Indian food, and there are some good places here in Savannah. I don't know what the... But, I mean... Let's be real. <laughs> There's some okay There's places. Two. Okay. There's two. Um, I don't know what the, the the Indian food scene looks like in Chattanooga. <laughs> Crossing my fingers here. Um, yeah, maybe northern India. And who would I have it with? Obama. With Obama. Okay, I mean, we'll do that. Yeah, that's a good choice. That's <laughs> okay. a good choice. He would be a great conversation. And I'll bring you along, Susan. We'll go together. <laughs> okay. Okay. You hear that, Susan? All right. So I've got one last question. How much money would it take for you to stay, and do you take a check? 
<laughs> well, Rob, you are going to be super poor now that you have a baby, so... <laughs> All right. Well, that's all we've got here today. Rachel Reese, thank you so much for being on Art on the Air Field Notes. I know I speak on behalf of all of the Savannah art community when we wish you well in Chattanooga, and we hope that you will stay in touch with us here in Savannah. Definitely. And I would say, please keep in touch with me. You know, artists, not only artists that I've worked with, but, you know, I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on what's going on here and you know this is I feel very connected obviously to this place so I'll definitely be back and um, I would encourage you all to stay in touch with me as well. That's all the time we have for this week's episode of Art on the Air with your host Rob Hessler. Listen every Wednesday for our live show broadcasting from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on 107.5 FM Savannah Soundings and worldwide at WRUU.org. And you can catch past episodes on the WRUU station archives on our website, as well as on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. We'll talk to you next week, where we'll have another batch of art on the air. <laughs>